Pulitzer Prize winning author Ron Suskind recently published a very personal book about his 19 year old autistic son. As a parent, he described how he knew that his son was in there and searching for a way out and a way into society. Next on CTSI Discovery Radio, hear how new research here in Wisconsin is helping teens with autism connect. That's next. Good day, Southeast Wisconsin. I'm David Todd, your host for CTSI Discovery Radio here on WMSE. Eight research institutions make up the CTSI, or Clinical and Translational Science Institute, of Southeast Wisconsin. They are the Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the Medical College of Wisconsin, and UW-Milwaukee, plus Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, the Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. CTSI of Southeast Wisconsin is one of 62 medical centers that has received the Clinical and Translational Science Award from the National Institutes of Health with the intent of making scientific discovery faster, better, and more cost-effective to ultimately promote better health community-wide. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking about autism in teens today. So we have invited Dr. Alan Gutmacher, Director of the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, a division of the NIH, to talk with us about the growing incidence and diagnoses of children with autism spectrum disorders. Good afternoon, Dr. Gutmacher. Good afternoon, David. It's good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, What can you tell our listeners about the growing number of autism cases and what we know about why we're seeing an increase? We don't even know completely for certain, David, that we are seeing an increasing number of cases. We're certainly seeing an increase in diagnosed cases, but whether the number of cases has really increased, and I'll come back to the fact that maybe it has, or whether we simply are better at recognizing the quote-unquote cases. That is, we know for sure that we've become much more aware of what autism spectrum uh, disorders represent, the true spectrum of kinds of, of things that can occur. And because we've gotten much better at recognizing that, we've also been much more informed and much more able to recognize people and quote-unquote diagnose them as being on the spectrum, as having some form of autism. But whether the increased incidence that we seem to be seeing, the increased number of cases, is simply because we are getting better at recognizing it, or whether there truly are more cases to recognize. That is, is the the number of individuals with autism spectrum disorder really increasing? We're less clear about that, and that's partly because we've never been that good about really recognizing it, really counting cases. We certainly have some data, some research, which suggests that the real prevalence of the disease, of the condition, is increasing. The Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is probably the best source for those kinds of statistics in the U.S. And every couple of years, they get administrative data from 11 sites across the U.S. And the most recent data, which they've published earlier this year, was actually from a survey done in 2010. And that survey suggested that looking at kids who've been born eight years previously in 2002, mm-hmm. that about one in 68 qualified as being someplace on the autism spectrum. 
that same exact survey two years earlier that is done in 2008 of kids born in 2000 had seen a prevalence of one in 88. And, and it wasn't long ago that um, Asperger's was actually included in the autistic spectrum too. So that kind of broadened the incidence as well. That, that we Absolutely. That was probably the moment where the incidence increased the most. It was not until 1943 that a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins named Leo Connor first recognized 11 different kids that he had seen, all of them boys it turns out, who had similar kind of features and he thought maybe they have the same thing going on. I'm going to have to invent some term to describe it. Well, let's call it autism. So he really invented the diagnosis in 1943. So then the you know number of cases increased and you're right that when Asperger's was was recognized some years after then included within autism spectrum that clearly the, the number of recognized cases jumped again. Is there any research that's showing, you know, environment or, or, or any other reason why there's an increase in the incidence? Sure, that's a very good question. We are quite clear that what we call autism is undoubtedly a number of different conditions that have some similar characteristics but may have very different causes. We think that genetic variation, difference in genes amongst individuals probably plays a role in a large percentage of cases of autism, but it's not genes alone. Other things are involved. There could, in fact, be something going on in the environment. There are lots of different theories of what those things might be. There still are some individuals who believe that it's vaccination that causes autism. Well, that's the one thing that we know for sure does not cause the vast majority of cases of autism. Vaccination is very safe. It's very important for kids health, including kids who have autism, the vaccination can be very important to prevent them from getting other diseases that can affect them kind of thing. And thank you for making that point. Yeah, no, it's an important point. Uh, We really do know that's not a factor. However, we don't know if there might be other things out in the environment that are playing a role, and we clearly have a lot of research trying to figure that out, but we still don't know what, if any, environmental factors may play some role in in the causation of autism. And that's why we've got this research enterprise going. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of, you know, this is why we need research in autism right now. Clearly, we need research to understand what is the true prevalence. Is it increasing? If it is increasing, why? What are the causative factors? Beyond the causative factors, regardless of what causes autism, we need, and we're doing a lot of research to try to figure out how can we... Um, improve the options for people living with autism and their families so that those individuals can lead full, happy, productive lives. We have not um, done as good a job as we have either about research in that area or um, implementing what we do know from research in order to allow people with autism to really prosper. Dr. Goodmacher, thank you so much for that really interesting perspective. I appreciate your time and, and your, uh, your uh, information. To give us some perspective on what it means to receive a clinical and translational science award, we've reached out to another CTSA institution, the Clinical and Translational Science Center at the University of California, Davis, to speak with their director, Dr. Lars Berglund. Good afternoon, Dr. Berglund. Good afternoon, David. Um, I want to ask you, uh, how have you used your CTSA award to make an impact uh, at UC Davis? Well, I'm very pleased to talk about this because I think it has, has actually meant quite a lot to us and we have been able to do things that we really couldn't do before. The CTSA provided us with a platform to bring together 
trainees and to form a critical mass of that actually goes from students to postdoctoral fellows to junior faculty and to some extent to mid-level faculty who have to sort of relearn things um, as, as, as research has become more complicated. Uh, and it did, in addition, the staff training, which actually was not very advanced at that time. Uh-huh. And we have been able to extend our our training programs to get new training programs that we have partnered with. Uh, a couple of good examples are in can- the area of cancer and emergency medicine, uh, where there have come a couple of more training grants. And most recently, and this is actually just a few months ago, we were able to compete very su- successfully for, for an NIH director so-called BEST Award, which is Broadening Experience in Scientific Training, oh. which involves uh, a lot of of trainees actually and learn and teaching them skills that go beyond the traditional research skills that involves project management, communication, um, regulatory science, and and working in industry. So so I feel that that area has actually provided us with enormous opportunities. Um, we have an, a program that that didn't really exist before, which which now exists in every CTSA, and that is the skills in information technology and informatics and how to use large data set oh yeah and I think we all benefit from from the CTSA environment there because we are able to, to pick up tools that other CTSA have uh, and and uh, are willing to very uh, to share with us to enhance our program I'm, I'm quite certain that that if you look at what we had before and what we have now it's it's a wealth of difference well it sounds like you've got a great platform there for collaboration and for a real depth in the uh, scientific studies and the medical studies Yes, exactly, and, and I think now we are starting to work very, very uh, in depth with our hospital because we are able to use our, our skill sets, our tools to look at at routine clinical care and look at the quality measurements and and which which uh, methodologies are going to be most helpful for patients is one one area which I think will expand quite a lot. The other thing uh, we have worked now for for a couple of years together with the four other University of California CTSA sites who have have this program and we have started to realize that we actually are part of the same university system we are just not only competing but we also collaborating and and that has meant a lot of differences so we are able to to leverage um, resources tools and ideas that come from all the five university of california sites that have ctsa's Dr. Berglund, thank you so much for sitting down with us and having uh, this conversation. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We recently visited CTSI partner organization, Marquette University, to talk with their new president, Mike Lovell. Thank you for your time today, President Lovell. Thanks for having me. Um, as many people know, July marks your first official month as Marquette's new president, but you're not new to CTSI or developing partnerships across institutions. Could you tell me what it means to you to see this kind of community-wide collaboration among universities? Well, I really think that the CTSI represents uh, the future of our region because it provides a platform for some of the most important institutions in Milwaukee to work together in unique ways that we can't do independently on our own. So when I think about the unprecedented opportunities that it gives our faculty, staff, and students, not only at Marquette, UWM, MSOE, but at the Medical College, Children's Hospital, and Freighters, it's something that's really special and lets us compete on a national stage, which we couldn't do independently. When you think about what's going to drive the Milwaukee region going forward, I really think this biotechnology medical cluster is something that is really going to change 
the way Milwaukee really operates going forward, and I think that we can be a leader nationally through the CTSI program. And again, I think one of the things that CTSI provides is for our campus, the Medical College, UWM, MSOE, is a mechanism for us to do things in unique ways, such as doing maybe a regional bioengineering program rather than even just a joint between two institutions. You know, things like that have never been talked about before in Milwaukee, as far as, far as I know, anywhere else in the country. Well, and in this program, we're interviewing um, Dr. Amy Van Hecke, um, who's one of your doctors here, um, who's using um, the uh, core resource of MRI at Medical College. Yeah. So it's a true collaboration in her project. Yes, and, and we think about what's happening out at Innovation Campus. It's really becoming a community of science that all the institutions in the region are going to have a presence there and be able to work together. And CTSI has provides that platform where we already have agreements and can already you know, begin working together as we develop new facilities and technology out there. Thank you for your time today, Dr. Lovell. Just across campus, Dr. Amy Van Hecke is studying autism in adolescence. We sat down with Dr. Van Hecke to hear how her CTSI research is progressing. Dr. Van Hecke, your study of autism in teens started as a psychosocial experiment to see if making a friend could have an impact on those adolescents living with autism. How has your research evolved? So uh, our research started with really wanting to know, can we show good effects of an intervention, a friendship intervention, for kids with autism that had been developed at UCLA. So we really wanted to make sure, you know, does this intervention work in our setting? Um, would it work in other settings away from where it was developed? And um, so that's called a replication study. And so that was our first kind of step was to do that. And we were also, on the, the side note, interested in how brain activity changed as a result from making friends. So the kids who went through the intervention versus kids that were waiting showed um, better friendship quality with other kids, um, more get-togethers with other kids, both that they hosted themselves and that were invited by other kids. So that's reciprocal friendship, which is great. Um, they show fewer symptoms of autism. Uh, their parents were rating that. And they showed fewer problems at school. Their teachers were rating that. So the teachers didn't know what the kids were doing uh, at Marquette, and they rated the kids as being better, behaviorally better controlled at school. We actually had a lot of teachers contact us and asking us what we were doing. Uh, we couldn't tell them. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. couldn't tell them. We were like, well, we're, we're doing a study um, and we need your input, so we can't tell you too much right now. Um, but afterwards, we did tell them. And that's how we really built up our first couple of groups was through teacher word of mouth. Um, teachers would tell other teachers and uh, they would parents would call in. And was it autistic um, adolescents with groups of friends or was it just one-on-one? -on -one? Groups of friends. Okay. So our groups of kind of uh, kids do not know each other to start out. So we start with about, I think our maximum is 10 kids per group. So it's a group intervention setting. Um, the parents meet in a separate room. So the parents are right next door learning what the kids are learning. And it's really very much a class um, which the kids really thrive with that kind of structure. Um, kids with autism are very concrete and kind of really thrive in an environment where material is sort of step-by-step, step. Um, a lot of examples. We do a lot of role plays. Um, you know, we show kids the right way and the wrong way to join a conversation, and we ask them to tell us when we do it wrong, which they love. Teenagers love to tell you when you're doing something wrong. Of course. Um, first and foremost, these kids are teenagers. Then we have to remember that. And that's an important piece of the intervention, is that it's really aimed at what we call ecologically valid social skills for teenagers. So when we get to things like teaching them how to handle teasing, you might tell a child, you know, go tell a teacher. Uh, but with a teenager, going to tell a teacher would be social suicide. Right. So we tell them to say whatever. 
when they get teased, kind of snappy comebacks, mm-hmm. which the parents are a little doubtful about <laughs> at first they were teaching their teen a snappy comeback. Right. But it works. It's how you get kids off your back. And was the group of, uh, of 10 people, was it all um, uh, 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 autistic adolescents or yes. was it a mixture? Mm-hmm. No, nope, all kids with autism. And that was really necessary for the research. So when we're looking at brain activity or rating scales of any sort, we want to make sure our kids are as most similar as possible. Um, if you have a kid that has another diagnosis in that group, it can kind of um, it can kind of affect the findings. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure we screened all the kids for autism. We do look screening tests and kind of intake tests um, for autism and for sort of um, ability to talk in complete sentences and that kind of thing, ability to participate in the group, mm-hmm. um, and ability to learn in that kind of setting. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Amy Van Hecke, who just received a CTSI Mentored Career Development Award for her studies of adolescents with autism. Where, where do, where's your research going with this? So we are very excited. You know, by nature, um, I'm a curious person, um, very curious, and I love learning about autism because it really, I think, gives us insights about human nature, um, and it really gives us insights about the strengths of the kids as well, what strengths they have. I think. We spend a lot of time talking about weaknesses. I think it's great to see where they can be strong, where they can shine, um, if they have the right supports. And so with showing that the kids um, have all these positive behavioral changes, um, part of that study was also looking at their brain activity and how that changed using electroencephalogram. Um, And we primarily at this point have showed that we see more activity in the the left hemisphere, the left side of the brain, which is tied with um, positive emotion and kind of well-being. So we're certainly not saying that we're curing autism, but we are showing a more a profile, a neural profile, <clears throat> indicative of sort of well-being and happiness and less depression and anxiety. And the kid's social anxiety does decrease, which makes a lot of sense. When you know how, you're less anxious about it. So it's really more of a coping mechanism. It's a coping, coping intervention. It's a coping yeah. intervention, and it's an exposure intervention. So over the 14 weeks, we're having them join conversations. We're having them call other kids repeatedly. And the more they do that and the more they experience success at that, the better their, their confidence is in, in doing that again. And now you want to do... Um deeper imaging. You want to really see what's happening inside the brain. Tell me about that. Right. So what we want to do now, so looking at EEG, it's just activity kind of on the surface of the brain, um, and it's not very good at pinpointing exactly where that activity is coming from. And so we want to really look now at the structure of the brain and um, at methods that can get deeper into the brain. So with emotion, there are some centers in the very center of the brain that EEG can't measure. So that's one thing that we'll be looking at is sort of really deep brain structures. And then I'm very excited to look at structure. So with the brain, it's kind of a use it or lose it phenomenon. That activity propels structure. The more an area is active, the more it grows and refines itself. So we're very excited to look at what we call the white matter connections or the highways in the brain. Are we showing changes in the organization of the actual structure? Um, And if so, what outcomes is that linked to? Um, And so you know, kind of working backwards of if the brain changes, if the behavior changes, the brain changes, what can then that also tell us about how the brain was to start um, and what was maybe less than optimal to begin with. And you're going to be doing, uh, looking at kind of seeing if there's a rewiring happening through MRI, correct? Through MRI, yes. Through MRI, it's something called DTI, diffusion tensor imaging as well. Um, So... um, 
really kind of looking at those, those structures. And, and those structures change in adolescence anyway. So, you know, teenagers are the way they are because their brains are being kind of reshaped and rewired, and that's why they're a hot mess. Um, <laughs> I think everyone kind of understands that when you know a teenager. They're really, they're kind of like a two-year-old in many ways. And So this is a good time for an intervention. Regular or autistic. Exactly, right. Great intervention times are when the brain is in flux. And the brain is definitely in flux in adolescence and in early childhood. Your brain actually is in flux your whole life, but there are massive periods of reorganization in, in either infancy, early childhood, and in adolescence. So we're trying to really capitalize on that time of reorganization to shift it towards a healthier, happier pattern um, rather than sort of a diffuse, disorganized pattern in the brain. Well, Dr. Uh, Van Hecke, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, it sounds like you were really giving hope to a lot of uh, parents of autistic children and a lot of hope to um, autistic teens themselves. Thank you very much for having me. One of the adolescents Dr. Van Hecke has been working with closely is Aaron Krauss. His mom, Sandy Krauss, and he are big advocates for autism awareness here and in our state's capital. Sandy, how are the two of you tackling this issue together? Um, it's issue by issue. We became very involved when the Autism Society had taken on insurance coverage for autism services. Had gone to the Capitol a number of times for rallies for that. Um, and I had actually taken my son with me for some rallies, which was um, the best educational opportunity for him as well, because at that point he was actually studying government in school. So couldn't ask for a better hands-on experience. Um, since that point, there have been a number of other issues that we've gotten involved in. Uh, most recently, we were very active in the special needs scholarship, um, and we were on the side of four, the special needs scholarship. Went to Madison many, many times to testify. Uh, went to Madison to meet with leaders, lobby, those types of things. Met a lot of other families along the way, which was wonderful. But we were very active in that particular cause because um, the public schools have not served us well at all. And we were even at the point of starting the due process proceedings, which are very skewed in favor of school districts. And it was a matter of, do we pay for the private school or do we pay for the attorney for a battle? And what most people don't know is you win a due process every single year, you have the same battle. Because just because the school places your child in the outside school one year doesn't mean that it's a given for the next year. Oh, yeah. And we live in a district that's well known for putting people through that every year. Mm. So it, for us, it just was more logical even though it did feel wrong to just say, fine, we'll pay for the other school. I keep hearing people say, oh, well, you know, they have an IEP, and, well, there's the IDA, and, you know, of course, special ed parents, we use these terms all the time. Um, our experience was that an IEP is a piece of paper, and it has no more power than any piece of paper. Our experience was... And what is an IEP? An IEP is an individual education plan. Okay. It's a legal document which is supposed to by law be followed by your school district. The experience that many of us have is that that piece of paper is not followed. And you spend countless hours trying to get it followed, and then it's still not followed. In the meantime, your kid's falling through the crackers. Yes. So when people would say, well, you know, why would you leave the public school? Because you have all these legal protections. They're wonderful on paper, but in reality, the best protection for a child is an involved parent. When you and your mom go to Madison, what do you like to what what do you want those people to know? 
What do you want, want them to know that they need to focus on helping people with autism. Also, women need more rights. Overall, um, what do you what do you hope that um, that um, our state will do um, as far as laws? Do you hope that something will change? Autism scholarship. That's you. That's your focus, huh? Yes. All right. Sounds pretty good. That's just what two people can do. At the Autism Society of Southeast Wisconsin, Executive Director Emily Levine knows so much more needs to be done. Emily, what's the greatest need you see day to day to give young people living with autism some sort of normalcy? I see the biggest barrier is people's attitudes. We really want our young people to be accepted and not looked at as different. Really what they have is they have more in common with everybody else than different. And what we really would like to see people do is to presume competence. Some people may move differently or have difficulty speaking, but that doesn't necessarily tell you what's going on in their heads. So we really encourage people to presume that even if someone is nonverbal, they understand everything that's being said to them. Maybe they are not able to respond in the way you expect but that they do know what's going on and that they're no less deserving to be part of the community than anybody else. I know that when I was meeting with Sandy Krause and Aaron Krause, um, she said that Aaron's IQ is off the charts. Uh-huh. Um, and he's just, you know, is working to you know, find his place in society. And that's what all of us want for our kids, no matter where their IQ is. We want them to reach their full potential. And for some kids, that might mean that they're... Um, college bound. Some of our kids might not be college bound, but we want them to be able to be a part of the community, to work, um, to have friends, and to do to have choice in their lives. The same kinds of things that you and I would want for our lives. Those, those sorts of choices should be considered for people with disabilities. Thank you, Emily, so much for the time. Okay. This is the part of our program where we play translational trivia a chance for you to have some fun and learn a little something. On the phone with us today is Katrina Cravey, host of Studio A on Fox 6. Hi, Katrina. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing well. Good, good. Okay. We're going to ask you three questions, and you need to get two of them right to win. And to- okay. <laughs> and today you'll be playing on behalf of one of our Facebook friends, Jim Klein of Wauwatosa. Jim will All right, win. Jim. I hope I don't let you down. Oh, I'm sure you won't. Um, Jim will win a CTSI prize pack, including a CTSI pen, notebook, coaster, and an 8-gig flash drive. Are you ready for question one? Go for it. Okay, the first question is multiple choice. Which of the following are signs that a child might have an autistic spectrum disorder? A, child does not respond to their name by 12 months. B, child does not point to an object to show interest in it, like a plane flying over, by age 14 months. C, the child avoids eye contact and wants to be alone. Or D, all of the above. I'm going to say all of the above. And you'd be correct. Oh, good. Okay, so you got one down. All right, Jim, we're a little step closer. All right, our uh, question two is called science or fiction. So your answer should be science or fiction. All right? Okay, here's your question. ASD occurs equally in all racial, ethnic, 
socioeconomic and gender groups. Science or fiction? Fiction. You are correct again. ASD right. actually occurs in all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups, but are almost five times more common among boys than among girls. Correct, which was scary for me when I had a son. That was something I was concerned about. Well, apparently you have five times more of a reason to be concerned. Right. All right, now your final question is a, is a fill-in-the-blank question. So you've already got two right, so you've won. So this one, uh, this one you can... Uh, this one's a gimme. Can I still ask for a friend's help here on Studio A if still, I have to? You can still ask for a friend's help. And, and you okay. might need to. You might, to, might need to. Okay, question okay. three. Autism is one diagnosis in the autism spectrum disorder. Which other common condition, also beginning with an A is now included in the autism spectrum disorder. Oh, I have to... Be, I was waiting for the multiple choice. No, I no, guess this, I have is, to. this is a filter blank. <laughs> no, sorry. All right. Uh, I'm yes, I'm going to go for a lifeline, and I'm going to ask Brian Cramp. The question is, autism is part of the autism spectrum disorder. What other condition, also beginning with an A, is now included in that spectrum? What'd you say? Asperger's. Asperger's. Three right. Hey, nice job, guys. Way to go. I think you're the only guest that's gotten all three correct. Hey, that's just the way we do it on Studio A. Well, there you go. Thank you, Katrina, for joining us. And thank you, Brian, for helping Katrina out, too. I appreciate that. But you got to have friends. One last item for you. CTSI Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make sure to mark your calendar to join us on August 15th, where we'll talk about managing type 1 diabetes as a family affair. Until then, CTSI Discovery Radio is produced by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The show is engineered by Tom Crawford, with special thanks to Sandy Everett's, Drs. Herman Beats, Carlos de la Pena, and Reza Shakir. Radio.